when you hold me in your arms so tight you let me know everything's all right Okay, welcome to episode 10. We're in double digits. That means the MCU must be as well, because this is Ben and Matt's Marvelous Journey, a podcast series chronicling the history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. My name is Matt Waters. I am joined by Ben Phillips. We are recording the latest we've ever recorded, so let's see what impact that has on things. Ben, how are you this late evening? I feel like it's not going to affect anything, because it's the weekend. Uh, well, you know, we'll see what happens. I Normally we're doing this on work nights, slash school nights. Yeah, I know, but this feels... Yeah, fair. Fair, fair, fair. <laughs> so we will be discussing Guardians of the Galaxy today. A phenomenally popular film. A very surprising film in every conceivable way. It's one of the better reviewed films. It's It's a film that when people do their top Marvel movies lists and rankings, it features very near the top uh, a lot of things put this at the very top it isn't there for me i know uh yeah, I, I mean everyone likes it no one doesn't like guardians of the galaxy i think you like it a bit more than me but that's not to say i don't like it so i think it's it's one of the two movies that kind of like has grown out of its place within the marvel cinematic un- universe all the others fit quite nicely within it and so far like avengers and guardians of the galaxy are the two that i feel are bigger than this franchise mm. and, obviously, and obviously black panther is now as well but like yeah. i think the the those are the three movies that you kind of like they feel like the movies that even if you don't have an interest in this series they are the ones that people will point to and be like yeah and also it, it's something that other movies try and copy like the movies they make more generally i feel like the general business model people try and take but people are directly riff- riffing off guardians i'm not sure deadpool happens if guardians isn't a hit yeah so released august 1st 2014 which seems crazy to me but there you go the films that came out since the winter soldier are amazing spider-man 2 and days of future past x-men days of future past i should say to give it its full thing so yeah, some pretty big comic book movies were released in that year. You know, like the, the Captain America sequel, the Amazing Spider-Man sequel, a huge X-Men movie which boasts an enormous cast, kind of Fox's attempt to Avengers up X-Men, which is already a team-up movie. But, you know, by combining the casts, that felt like a kind of a response to Avengers. 2014 was almost a home run for these movies. If almost. It was for Amazing Spider-Man 2. Ah, it's got good bits in it. Runtime of 122 minutes. About an average MCU length, nothing remarkable there. It's pretty breezy, like it flies by, there's no dreary segments or anything that drags, anything like that. $232 million budget, the most expensive movie they have made to date. $32 million more than the sequel will cost to make, which is crazy, because you'd think, oh, it must be all the special effects. But, I mean, they've got an equal number of CGI characters in the second one and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the original budget was $170 million. I guess it tested so well and, like, sizzle reel stuff and, and footage and trailers. They knew they had a pretty big thing on their hands, so they probably chucked it fuck ton more money at them to sort of punch it up do more marketing i don't know it made 733 million dollars at the box office which is slightly more than the winter soldier you'd think it had made more money than it has given the kind of cultural penetration it had but it is more than amazing spider-man 2 and days of future past made i believe it's also important to note that like at that point it was the fourth biggest mcu movie 
domestically. True. I mean, when, least... I, when I say oh, only 733, it's just because this false idea that all the Marvel movies make a billion dollars. It's like, yeah, several have, but not all of them by any yeah, stretch. It made, it made more money than Iron Man did yeah. domestically. And then since then, like Civil War, Guns of Galaxy 2, Spider-Man, Homecoming have all outgrossed it in those markets, which kind of dampens his impact. But like, <laughs> this movie was a monster the summer yeah, it came out. It's word of mouth. Like, the merchandise, like you and I for a living have sold a lot of Guardians of the Galaxy merchandise. We have probably heard this soundtrack as much as many, you know, the people that worked on it probably have. Some uh, of this stuff is burnt into my soul. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The number of dancing group pop vinyls I've put on shelves over the years. In two different cities, I might add. It was selling <laughs> that well that they were continuing to do well when I moved. Directed by James Gunn. Written by James Gunn. Well, we'll, we'll get to that bit. James Gunn did Slither. He did Super. Before now, they, they've, they've had Favreau. They, they've had Johnston. Like they, they, they had Joss Whedon. They go to TV people. You talk about taking risks, but I think James Gunn is about as left field of a, as a choice as they've ever made, but it paid off for them in spades. And uh, you kind of see, I, I think some of the directors that have gotten to do these movies since him maybe have him to thank for it because they, yeah. they took a risk on an indie director and gave him the biggest budget they'd ever given anyone. And he delivered a, I mean, we were texting before this and you said, is this potentially the most wholly successful movie they've made? And I asked you what that meant. And given your parameters, which you can explain in a second, I think you might be right. <laughs> this movie is so utterly divorced from everything that's come beforehand. It doesn't have a crutch to stand on in terms of anything. It's made more money than any movie that isn't the Avengers up to this point. Almost everyone in this cast is someone who's completely unknown. Bradley Cooper's probably the biggest star of that point in time, like even the, with... I think they're two biggest stars are the people that don't physically appear. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sure, we have one of the cast members of Avatar, but like no one's watching Avatar for like who the cast is and then you've also got the fact that even these characters are not well known to to, to comic readers it's just it's just so bizarre that this movie came about and almost entirely off the back of the marketing and the trailers and just everything around it It it's just this runaway success and it's again it's the one that i feel like a lot of people talk about yeah. as being bigger than what came beforehand. Like, I remember I listened to a podcast a couple of months ago that was talking about, like, what are the best blockbusters of the 21st century? And this was the only Marvel movie that they felt confident enough to put on that list, which mm. I would say Avengers is probably, like, a better blockbuster, but, like, this movie is as close to feeling like a wholly original piece of this. Because I'm fairly, like, even all the other characters, like Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, there is some level of cultural permeation there. Thor had appearances in the Incredible Hulk TV series. Captain America is Captain America. Like, he's not Superman, but he still has that level of, like, oh, people recognise him. And Iron Man had a cartoon series. He's shown up in, like, little bits and pieces. But these are just... None of these characters have any mainstream exposure whatsoever. And by the end of 2014, everyone knows Groot. Everyone knows Rocket. Everyone knows Drax. This is, for me, the kind of, like, the start of the true Marvel machine. Where, like... Yeah, for sure. Like, coming off the back of some... Films that are divisive, not well received, had some controversy. This is just a fucking feel good hit that made money, was well received. Uh, as you said, it didn't really depend on anything else. They they took some characters that weren't well known and launched them into the stratosphere. They made stars of several of these performers, and they also kind of launched the overall MCU narrative in this movie, which, by all accounts, nobody should have given a fuck about this. 
And luckily enough, everyone's seen it because now they know the plot of Marvel, but it's yeah, weird that they like, put that in here. This is the movie with the literal info dump explaining what Infinity War is centering on. This is weirdly up to this point, like, even Avengers, which features Thanos in a role, does not feature any explanation of who he is, what no. his goals are, and stuff like that. Whereas this is the one that's like, yeah, this is this, is this, this is this, this Here's is this. Thanos, just like... this is what an Infinity Stone is, this is what this is, yeah, for sure. I mean, we, I, I would have to think that that stuff comes from i mean I, I said james gunn directed and wrote it also on the writing side of things nicole perlman has a writing credit i think it, the bare bones of the story of hers uh, but james gunn did rewrite her script i'll get into that in a second chris mccoy was hired to do some rewrites but he didn't get any credit at all but the reason i think for the the overall story is marcus and mcfeely who you know have worked on all the captain america movies and now have the keys to the avengers they did some finishing touches and i wonder if that is oh, this film's actually going to be quite big. Maybe we should slap in a whole bunch more stuff about the overall plot. I don't know. That's me speculating. Yeah, that feels right. This feels like they probably looked at this movie and just thought, let's put something in for... Either they thought this movie's going to be big and we should put something in for the fans, or they thought this movie's not going to do very well, so we should put something in to get people in seats who are the Marvel diehards. You You can chop it up either way. I think this stuff is in there on a very cynical level. And it's amazing that the movie gets away with being as boldly info-dumpy as it is with some of the stuff that's in this movie. <laughs> so, I have mentioned in the past on this podcast the Marvel like, writing program that they have. And the the idea of this is that they they collected a, a series of writers and they were they gave them, here are some projects that aren't as well known as the big stuff. Like, you're not going to get to play with Iron Man, you're not going to get to play with Cap. Here's some stuff that like no one really gives a shit about, <laughs> or no one knows, or it's just more difficult. And the people in this program came up with pictures and scripts for these these properties. And one of the people in this program is Nicole Perlman. And she picked Guardians of the Galaxy because she's a huge sci-fi fan. And she has said herself that they were surprised that she picked it based on her gender is the way she phrased it. So I'm thinking that... I mean, she's currently attached to both Captain Marvel and Black Widow. So I would imagine Captain Marvel would be the one that they had in mind for her. She said that they seemed like they thought she would pick one specific one. And I would imagine it's Captain Marvel. But she is attached to both of those. It is unfortunate that when James Gunn eventually joined, like, he basically tossed out her script. Like, they tried to... I feel like they've tried to save some face and be like, oh, Nicole Perlman, Nicole Perlman. But then if you look at the reality of it, I think almost none of her script is here. So I think she got it as far as it did, picking the team and like all of that kind of stuff. But it's a tricky one. But Kevin Feige first made mention of potentially doing Guardians of the Galaxy at Comic-Con 2010, talking about, you know, the kinds of characters they could do that are lesser known. And he talks about the 2008 comic book reboot and tying that in with Thor's potential to do, like, a space opera and stuff like that, and you'll be talking about that run, I'm sure. They made a formal announcement of the movie in 2012. They showed some of the concept art of the team. It looks like it's come straight from the 2008 comic book, all the stuff that sort of led to it. James Gunn beat out Peyton Reed, who would go on to do Ant-Man, and Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, who are directing Captain Marvel as of this recording. (laughs) Yeah, he beat both of them, so that's interesting. Joss Whedon, who has creative control of everything (laughs) between the Avengers and Avengers 2, was particularly thrilled with the signing of James Gunn. He talks very positively. Uh, And as I said, James Gunn, when he he joined up, he rewrote that script. I don't 
know if I love the way he talks about Nicole Perlman when he explains this. He said something like, the Writers Guild of America like first-time writers an awful lot. I think the, the quote is, they like first-draft writers a lot. Right. Not, so it's basically like, if you wrote the first script, even if nothing in that first script, if the fact you have a script with that title means you get credit forever. Yeah. And I mean, I, the Writers Guild of America is very weird. Like, you're only allowed three teams of writers to be credited on stuff. Yes. So if, <laughs> yeah, so it's like, so even if four teams of writers write in it, you have to then say like which team of writers had the yeah. most contribution and so basically the first team of writers will always get credit the team who were on it at the end will always get credit and then the two middle teams will have to fight it out for who actually made the yeah. most meaningful contribution this could be the Zach Penn Ed Norton thing the reality could be Ed Norton wrote that whole script but because Zach Penn wrote the first draft or whatever yeah exactly um, feels a bit dismissive of her because even if every line of dialogue is his I feel I mean you're about to talk about it and, and we spoke about it before we started recording but the speed with which they go from that comic book existing to a film taking that exact lineup and using that art starts development it is very quick so I feel Nicole Perlman must have had a very formed pitch in her head and a, a script that is most of the way there for them to get this moving as quickly as they did so I feel while the reality may be most of her script isn't what is seen in the film. She still, I think, carried this a long way before James Gunn came in and, and put his stuff on it. And, you know, let's not make any mistakes here. It's not like he came in and stole credit from her. Like His sense of humour and the way he handled these characters is why this movie is a hit. But you now have a wonderful task because nobody fucking knew who the Guardians of the Galaxy were. When this was announced, I didn't know. And, like, at this point, I had started to read comics and, like, give myself the Wikipedia for dummies-style crash course in who every hero is, and I barely knew who these people were. I found out about them through uh, the event Annihilation, which is still one of my favourite sort of Marvel crossovers that they've done, and I became pretty attached to this little team. But I think when they announced the film, I didn't know about any of them. But between that announcement and it coming out, I, I did read all of that and i was i was big into it and i didn't like that they were going to reboot it but that turned out okay as well but you can now talk about all that yeah so guns of the galaxy initially started in 1969 as a team set in the far flung future of space uh co-created by stanley arnold drake and roy thomas uh, all about star lord and drax and gamora right no no this is this is a completely <laughs> different team the only character from this who is in the movie is yondu but a very different type of yondu this is a weird one where like this series kind of was one of those little indie Marvel titles that they basically were doing to fill out a slot in their publishing cycle. No one remembers this title. These characters are not important until we get to Guns of Galaxy Volume 2. All we need to know is that the name was created around then. The important part is that years and years and years later uh, Annihilation happens as you mentioned which is a an event written by a whole load of people but yeah. most notably uh, Keith Giffen is the main architect of this one which is basically Annihilus uh, unleashes his Annihilation wave on the Marvel Universe and a whole load of the space heroes have to team up and stop it from happening. They really scraped the bottom of the barrel here. Like there were a whole bunch of just very disparate characters that had appeared in comics, like some of their own, some in teams, and they just sort of chucked everyone in there. Like Star Lord has been through a lot of iterations before they, they made this one, who is very different in Annihilation to to how he will end up. Yeah, this is this is one of those things where Marvel has gone through space frequently, most notably with the X Men, but never for sustained periods of time outside of like Silver Surface series and even he spends a lot of 
time on Earth. So this was basically Marvel going, we don't have any plans for this, do whatever the fuck you want, and something really amazing happening from it. So you get a sequel to Annihilation about a year or two later called Annihilation Conquest. Out of that spins a brand new volume of Guardians of the Galaxy, which pretty much features the team we've got in this movie. There's a, a couple of editions, I think, that aren't in here, but like for the most part it is... Gamora, Drax, Star-Lord, Rocket and Groot. And Captain Universe, uh, who is, of course, in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's 2018, which is now written by Dan Abner and Andy Lanning. And basically, those two become the kind of architects of Marvel Cosmic, as it was known at the time, which, in between the movie getting announced and being released, like, has died. The Thanos imperative is kind of like the conclusion to everything that's happening there, but these characters are basically put back into the toy box to get brought back out again when they announce it. But yeah, like, from, in 2008 they announced, the t- they announced this new team, and then 2009 there's a movie in development, which is She saying, really liked this comic, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, it's a really good comic. Like, if you, if you want to read, like, of almost every, anything I've mentioned so far on these comic runs like the marvel cosmic run from about 2006 to 2011 2012 is some of the best marvel comics that they were doing in that time period i was was heavily invested from annihilation annihilation conquest like it almost shouldn't have the name on it because it's so different but it it was like a very cool sort of follow-up from the stuff that you start to care about in annihilation and it was like heavily invested in a whole ton of characters that have done diddly squat since then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's also important to mention that almost none of the characters in this movie are Stanley Jack Kirby creations. No. Like this is this is the first time we're coming into this where like we've had a few heroes be that, but like for the most part, like Iron Man, Hulk, Captain America, these are all either created by Stanley and Jack Kirby or Jack Kirby. And like this is the first time where the only character who is in the team who is a Stanley get Jack Kirby creation is Groot and it's just it's just a name. Yeah, like he, I think he talked. He was like a monster from Planet X, like all this stuff. And he talks in that original Guardians team up story, but then when they launched the actual comic out of it, he's down to I am Groot. Yeah, uh, but yeah, he's he's mean as well. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot of stuff that kind of gets retooled yeah. uh, in between a lot of this stuff. Um, but yeah, so basically these are <laughs> the throwaways of Marvel Cosmic. Yeah that get put together into a really, really fantastic comic book and they're made into a movie. This is part of what makes some of this so interesting is that I yeah. don't think anything Marvel have made recently, apart from uh, a couple of their kind of like younger teen heroes, has hit off in such a way that it feels like a movie could be built around them since mm-hmm. Guns of Galaxy. And the fact that they've realised how quickly they had a big, big thing on their hands is really impressive and it's kind of sad that we haven't seen some of the, those teen heroes that I mentioned get this kind of like speedy development I think the fact that no one gave a shit about the characters, I I think that that helps because I would imagine Marvel were very precious about how Iron Man was handled and how especially Captain America was handled and, and Thor... But I don't think they gave a fuck about what James Gunn did. Like, they, they hired a weird outside-the-box director and someone from their rating team and were like, here are some characters we don't care about, like, public perception of them that much as long as it doesn't tank. And, like, if it tanks, it tanks. Like, they, they, the, the comic goes on or maybe it gets cancelled, I don't know. But I think all of that just gave him a level of creative freedom that we haven't seen before. I mean, Joss Whedon had it, but obviously we'll find out <laughs> next episode that that's not a happy ending it gives him that advantage and he, he got a blank canvas and he fucking crushed it like it's, it's almost like an original creation in some ways yeah this is three wholly separate groups of people just being 
given a blank slate to do whatever they want. Keith Giffen being given a blank slate to do whatever he wanted with Marvel Cosmic, then Dan Abner and Andy Lanningan being a blank slate, and then James Gunn being given a blank, blank yeah. slate. Like, at no point, people have realised these characters have a lot going for them in terms of, like, what visually they look like, what they can appeal to and stuff like that. And But no one cares enough to actually, like, put any limits on it. And I think because of that, they get to just explode out yeah. and become something so much bigger than they are. I mean, at this point, James Gunn is, I mean, like, you can't overestimate how important the comic guys is, but I do think in the mainstream perception, James Gunn is these characters. Mm-hmm. Even going back to like the fact that the comic series that kind of gets released around the time that this movie comes out is so heavily indebted to his uh, versions of these characters. Star-Lord completely redone to be a quip machine, dresses like Chris Pratt does in this movie after... You know, like, like the full helmet thing, like that was that's like a slight restyle, but like he exclusively wore that helmet for quite a while, and all this, and he wore like his weird uniform, and then this, the sort of like the red coat and and all of that, and the blonde and the two pistol, you know, that's all directly from Chris Pratt, and you know, changing the the way that Drax talks and all this sort of stuff, it's like a full on copy of the movie, but that was a fun series as well. Uh, I haven't read a Guardians book in a while. Like, is it is it still going? Uh, didn't they cancel uh, it? They've, Inexplicably. They've canc- They've cancelled it recently, but I think it's to be do like bigger game, games with it. It's like it's now an Infinity oh, Tide okay. series, so oh, it's okay. it, it's cancelled in quotation marks. But like the the writer who was writing it beforehand is still writing it. I think they just said like we can do something big for Infinity War and well, it, it was pretty fun for a while. Like you had Iron Man on the team, you had Venom on the team, you had Captain Marvel on the team. They did some fun things for a while but yeah and also this this movie is a it's not an out and out comedy but it's one of the more comedic movies they've made and it's very subversive <laughs> um and it, it it's it doesn't take itself too seriously like it's not just like robert downey jr being a quippy sarcastic prick and then it comes down to a big serious standoff like it's more than that like the entire tone of it the way the characters are it's all that and and i think there's there's talk of superhero fatigue and I don't know how real that is, but I do know that you look at this and you look at Deadpool, and they are two of the more popular superhero movies because they kind of go against the grain of what a superhero movie is. I mean, if you break it right down, they both still broadly obey the rules, but I think just making something fun and funny that anyone can pick up uh, goes a hell of a long way. Yeah, I think this, Avengers in some degree, are like the two movies that kind of like show that hey these movies can maybe be like 51 percent comedy 49 percent superhero drama mm. and like we see that even more in thor ragnarok in a couple of years time where like they start to get, lean more and more on actual comedy and actual comedy that works and i think it does really mesh with the kind of movies that they're making and i think they also realize that not every movie has to be funny no. Which I think is like the most important thing about this is this isn't and sorry to bash all over them but they're such an easy comparison and punching bag for this is the DCEU which there is one tone almost all their movies and it's just grim and dark and mm-hmm. every so often they'll say a line you go like, wait they, they they do a joke is that oh my, <laughs> but then that oh my makes God. it not work because it's so out of you know you look at Superman taking a life and he's so melancholy about it and then the next scene I think the film ends with like him smirking because a lady thinks he's hot and it's like that doesn't you can't yeah. do that when you've just yeah. done that so this movie this episode's gonna be a little bit more freeform because uh, I didn't get as much of a chance to do some notes but broadly speaking we have our disparate group of randoms from across the galaxy we have Peter Quill Star-Lord he is played by Chris Pratt and he is a kid who in the 80s I mean what a fucking gut punch of this 
broadly speaking funny movie that doesn't take it too seriously the first fucking scene is this kid's mum dying of cancer and giving him a present and then he walks outside and is abducted by aliens it's like wait what and then like from then on it's really really fun but it's like wait what the fuck are you doing guys i have an embarrassing confession about this go for it first time i watched this movie i walked into the cinema late Okay. And the first thing I saw was a scene where the the title card comes on and uh, he's and he's kicking the kicking the little alien creatures. Oh. That's why I'd, I had no fucking clue that his mum died of cancer. <laughs> Love it, love it. Yeah, it's a very grim, dark thing to start on, given the tone of the rest of it. But, I mean, it gets it out of the way, I suppose. And another thing about this, as far as the extended family are concerned, did this kid walk outside and get, like, murder, rape, kidnapped? Like, <laughs> do they know he was taken by... Because I assume he's never been back. It's just a very, like, don't pull on this thread, but it's it's right there. He's going back to Earth in Infinity War. Like, are they going to touch on this? Like... I, I don't know. Like, has he got uncles? They're like, dude, what the fuck? So he he's he's a lovable earthling in in space living a child's dream of just he flies about he bangs ladies of various skin colors and he he steals stuff and he shoots guns and he's got his own ship and it, it's just great good fun and you know a lot of people auditioned for this uh, you got Joel Edgerton just Eddie Redmayne that would have been interesting Lee Pace who ends up playing the villain Zachary Levi who you know Thor Joseph Gordon-Levitt would have been weird I'm not sure about that uh michael rosenbaum jack john gallagher jr from the newsroom uh and they all auditioned and they didn't get it you're forgetting the most important glenn howerton oh poor glenn howerton from always sunny kevin feige and james gunn were not interested in chris pratt's audition and it took a lot of convincing for them to be there but apparently from the second they actually gave him that audition james gunn was like yup i'm on board because he just walked in and crushed it into the dirt apparently with his audition you think he's an a-lister now but this was this was a you know in this movie full of characters no one knows who's your lead the the chubby dude from i remember i was one of the very few massive fans of parks and recreation in the uk because i think at that point it was airing on bbc4 which is um yeah i remember catching an episode and, and like so i was a passive fan so i remember being sat in like an improv comedy show the evening he gets announced and being like stupidly psyched for it and just kind of like showing the picture and people kind of go like blinking and kind of going, like that guy from zero dark 30 <laughs> and you're like yeah, no he's, no he's so good and yeah i mean and obviously he's run away with it and lego movie and jurassic world are massive massive hits and this this proved him as a bankable like a-list leading man you chuck him in anything he will be chris pratt in it at some point someone will criticize him for playing the same character every time but they haven't yet i don't think i really like the star lord helmet and full outfit and i kind of wish he wore it more but i do understand like this movie mandate that if you have a star you need to see their face and everything but i think he looks really fucking cool when he's wearing that thing does he even wear it in the second movie? He must want. It's a really cool design, but it is one of those things where it's just like they almost use it only for practicality yeah. or like. Well, we're they doing do that a big stu- moment in space with Gamora where like, he yeah. puts it on her. But, we're um, doing a stunt now. We need the stunt man get the mask on so we can do the stunt. With it. it almost feels like that's what they're going for with it. But well, yeah. I mean, you you talked about that that first the scene you walked into as far as you were concerned at the beginning of the movie. You know, he's having this big serious walk in his helmet and it's all like oh dust in space mysterious planet and then you know he has his little walkman which he always has listened to since the 80s he listens to the cassette that his mum gave him and, and it's full of uh, of music from the 70s and 80s and how robust is that cassette tape 
I know, right? And like, how did he go about finding alien technology that could play the damn thing? Like, I'm uh, sure, I'm sure, like the batteries were like a thing, but like, I can only imagine that like <laughs> he's had to have like reinforced that tape like so many times. Yes, but that scene that delivers you, Chris Pratt, the A-lister. That scene proves the concept of the soundtrack that they made because I mean, you mentioned it that there were people at Marvel who were like, can't put this kind of music in here, this film will bomb with children, etc. Turns out, <laughs> one of the highest selling movie soundtracks ever. I have heard it thousands of times, often by choice, not always. I own a physical cassette of it. I don't have anything that can play it, but I own it, and it's one of the coolest things I own. This soundtrack, phenomenally popular. I think a lot of people way too young to know any of this music were exposed to it and ended up liking it and the, the music throughout is, is a huge fucking reason to love it and that it's so integral to the story itself that it's like diegetic music like it's not just cool things to put it to it's actually part of the world it's important to peter and it's a plot device and everything it's all very very good and just that that very opening scene which was originally going to be hooked on a feeling but then they switched it up to come and get your love and just him dancing around to that is phenomenal that's basically the film in a nutshell the opening scene and yet yeah like both these movies guardians one and guardians 2 have a scene which almost entirely encapsulates what the movie's going for in that first scene Mm. and i i think this one is just so good at setting the tone for it even even when this kind of song kind of stops and you get into the the start of the plot of the movie it still continues to kind of nail like this is what this movie is going to be it's going to be part like kind of like heist or like that kind of where you're dealing with the bad guys kind of thing and part (laughs) subversive comedy movie about these tropes that you get james gunn created a playlist of like a few hundred songs uh, that he he'd like carefully gone through the charts of the 60s and 70s and picked some of the biggest stuff and he just had this huge playlist that he listened to constantly sometimes he was writing scenes based on songs and other times he'd written a scene and he would just hit shuffle on his playlist until he found something pretty sure he gave chris pratt an ipod with this playlist on it and made him listen to them all as well but uh, yeah and yeah. he even withheld some songs from him as well yes so. yes it's one thing to just be like yeah the soundtrack's awesome but i think it can't be understated how integral to the success of the movie it is and sort of the the wider impact and i'm not just saying this thing sold well this thing sold really fucking well <laughs> i have taken is- money from people and given them this cd several hundred times in my life <laughs> it was the second best-selling soundtrack of the year it came out behind only the frozen soundtrack which well, I think I mean I think even that's because... everything I said with one of them. No, no, I think I think that says volumes because I think yeah. like nothing on this soundtrack has become as ubiquitous as Let It Go. No. But I do think that like the fact that like we are talking it in the same realm as yeah. the biggest Disney soundtrack of the 21st century yes. speaks volumes to like what this thing is and yes. how you how these songs are now almost forever linked to this movie. Yes, the Star-Lord, uh, he's on a strange planet, he's trying to grab this cool orb thing, he doesn't even know what it is, so that he can sell it. He is confronted by some Sicarians, I think they are. Try and stop him, they are the bad guys. One of them is Jimon Honsu, and I am very sad about the backstory of him being involved in the MCU, because he has this heartbreaking story about how his son told him that he wished he was light-skinned so he could be Spider-Man. So he went out of his way to get a superhero role. And this is what he gets. A a role where he has about five lines and no one fucking remembers him. They remember, because I've seen this trailer a fucking ton. They they marketed the hell out of it. But, you know, 
I'm the Star-Lord. And he goes, who? And it's like, other than that, no one remembers your character. And that's pretty sad. But he was one of the many people they had in, in the running for Black Panther. And he ended up with this. And it's like, sorry, dude. It's still that thing where I never remember what actually happened to him in this movie. Drax yeah, rips his brain out. Yeah. like the, Every time I get to that moment, I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's that's what happens. That's why. I was uh, shocked to see him in, a, in at the end. I was like, oh. I thought you just fucked off forever. Okay. <laughs> Peter gets the orb. Off he goes. He goes to sell it. And he encounters a colourful little collection of people. Or, or or things. Or living organisms. Let's, let's go with that. <laughs> Two of them are CG characters. Voiced by Hollywood. I guess we've got to call them A-listers. Vin Diesel's been in some pretty big stuff. <laughs> you, could, you could say that. <laughs> so Bradley Cooper and Sean Gunn together play Rocket. Not Rocket Raccoon. They never call him that, I don't think, in any of the media. Because he's not a raccoon. He's just reminiscent of one. And Vin Diesel is Groot, who is a giant tree monster. And all he can say is, I am Groot. These two things alone <laughs> just encapsulate what a big fucking task they had on their hands to try and get this team of five, like, over with the public. They're like, yeah, we're going to launch a hit film with a raccoon and a tree. Yeah, like, this This was like, that promo picture came out and I just couldn't stop giggling. Because I, I yeah. vaguely knew who the Guardians were. I hadn't read much in depth into them, but, like, I knew them by reputation. I was just like, this is a big swing. Yes. Like, is, this can't... is a cocky thing to do. Like I, I know cannot... Avengers made a billion dollars, but I don't think the entire movie rests on the cast or what they do with these two. But I do think a big part of like whether or not people get on board with this is whether or not they make these two likable and yeah. work. They're either annoying and become like a trope and like a punchline, or they are phenomenally popular and you sell a ton of merch of them. Turns out it's the latter. And they, they made them the heart and soul of this movie yeah, in so sure. many ways. For sure. And, you know, I, I talked about the big budget. You can see it because Rocket is phenomenal looking. Like, the, the amount of moving hair there is on him, the way he moves and everything. And Groot as well. Like, this th- this size-changing, amorphic thing that can grow extra bits and everything. Like, and both of them look fucking phenomenal. And Groot's facial animations. <laughs> He's meant to be a tree and, like, barely moving. But they do... Some of the greatest moments in this film uh, come from little Groot movements. Like... There's a scene where he extends his arms and just grabs, like, five dudes and swings them into other dudes. And it's just, like, yelling and, like, committing massive violence. And then he turns around and does, like, the most innocent little smirk. Like a, like a fucking puppy or something. And it's golden. Uh, and, yeah, every penny they spent on animating both of these was very well spent. Because they, they had to look good. If you're going to put these guys in here, they can't look half-assed, and they weren't. They have a real sense of physicality, which is hard for these kind of CGI characters. Sometimes you get them where like they feel like they're off to the side, not really interacting with anything, whereas these two are interacting with the characters, they're interacting with the world, and they feel a part of it. Because it's, it's become a trope, like community spoofed it, where it's like featuring CGI character or whatever. There, you see it a lot, and you can tell, but... The, this is one of the easiest times you have forgetting that you're looking at CG and it's just these are five characters on a screen. Yeah, I said, I mean, I said to you before the movie that, like, I sometimes forget that this is Bradley Cooper. Yeah, and I think that's a huge compliment because, I mean, that's a pretty famous dude who, I mean, I, I feel he was on the rise to his biggest fame. You know, it's a recognisable, handsome guy and to have this little CG raccoon and you don't even actively acknowledge it's Bradley Cooper, I think, speaks volumes. <laughs> I mean, and I do think a big part of, like, Rocket as well is also Sean Gunn. And, yes. 
You have to think about the sheer number of times when it was three people in a room. Or there are scenes where it's one of them and then two of these characters. So it's like, if you look at any of the the behind-the-scenes stuff and listen to the cast talk, they will sing Sean Gunn's praises forever. Oh, he is the director's brother. It's it's not a coincidence. And they will sing his praises for the work he did in making that not fall apart as people talk to thin air. Yeah, because, I mean, I think some of his ad-libs made it into the movie, didn't they? I like, believe so, yeah. Like, he's the one that says, like, oh, look, we're all standing in a circle now. And Yeah, I think there's a reason that when they do press, it's like, I think Vin Diesel sometimes joins them, but Bradley Cooper is often not with them. And like they were they are this tight little unit and they love Sean Gunn and they never really talk about Bradley Cooper because I think to them, Sean is a part of that team because he helps them so much and not looking like idiots as they try and look at a vague spot on the floor and talk to a fictitious raccoon. Yeah, and I mean I it's also weird to think that he has another entire role in this movie. He yeah. is not only doing on set with all the characters when Rocket is on screen, but he's also in a side plot to this movie, which, like, he must have been on set an awful lot. Yeah. I feel it's like a reward to him for doing that in some ways. <laughs> like, because uh, his character will expand. Cranklin, I think he's called. And he will get a bigger role in the second one as that character. But yeah, it cannot be stated enough how important that character is. They do a great job because it, on the one hand, it's just, oh, it's a smart talking raccoon that like has a foul mouth and is a bit of a dick and like loves huge guns and everything. And all that is really entertaining. But they also give you these hints of this tragedy of it because he is like a lab experiment and the scene where they are all in prison and Peter sort of sees him putting on the uniform and you see these like metal bits to like artificially make him be able to walk upright and stuff and when they all get drunk and have a fight and he's like crying and saying I didn't ask to be made you know to be a little monster and it's like oh my god I feel for this this little CG rodent and it's it's pretty well done and like you know you say you forget it's Bradley Cooper it's a good voice performance I don't want to undercut it and say oh it's all Sean Gunn but it is a pretty good voice performance yeah no I I think he completely nails it but I think it's just like he's changing his voice enough and he's so not in the promotion for the movie that when I sit down and watch it like it feels like Rocket is a real thing yeah (laughs) and I think that's the most important thing and I think it's harder with Vin Diesel who is Because he's so like, oh yeah, I love doing this. And he he will tell you stories about reading all the different takes of I Am Groot and all of that. And yeah. he was so I mean, happy to be in it. And Bradley Cooper, it feels like, just kind of walked in near the end and just did his lines. I'm not saying he doesn't give a shit, but Vin Diesel was very sort of front and centre with it. Yeah, I also think like Vin Diesel feels like a more winky casting than yeah, Bradley Cooper. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's like oh, look, we've got the Iron Giant to voice Groot. And <laughs> is he confirmed for, like, Ready Player One? Like, I feel like that's sure the, amount that, the amount that that movie is leaning on <laughs> the Iron Giant imagery. Like, yes. I feel like that is almost <laughs> definitely happening. Yeah, probably, probably. Yeah, I mean, as I said, he recorded dozens of different I Am Groots, and I think that went a long way to impressing James Gunn. Like, I think he called him a, perf- a perfectionist. I feel most of the stuff with Groot, I mean, the gimmick of I Am Groot, that's funny, but I think more so than Rocket, the joy of the character is in the animation. Like, Bradley Cooper gives a good vocal performance, and, like, that character has loads of lines and everything, and it's just, that's like a 50-50 thing. With Groot, it's like, it didn't need to be Vin Diesel. I, I think I think he does actually do okay with how many I Am Groots he gives. It's just that they really went to town on, like, the different things they could do with this this creature. I think it's just the fact that, like, he wasn't on set. He wasn't doing mocap or anything like that. And so everything is coming from the CG department. And there was no one to do the little smile. There was no one to do 
I mean, there was there was someone on set. There was Christian Godlewski who actually was on set, but like apparently, like none of his performance was actually used in the final CG. So it no, wasn't it's like just a, a stand-in, so they know where to look. I think pretty much, yeah, it's just so, a tall guy. So it's not even mocap, and so everything is coming from special effects people, which in some ways is like really really impressive that mm-hmm. they managed to imbue this much heart and make him into the overly merchandised figure that he becomes yes. out of this movie. <laughs> A little bit too much focus goes to Groot. But, I mean, what a weird, wonderful thing they did here. Like, as I said, like, him, the thing he does with smashing all the guys, he makes a little ball of vines to protect them, he grows little, almost fireflies, grows a little flower from himself, Uh, he gets his arms cut off, you know, our ongoing theme of every film in Phase 2, someone loses an arm, as a nod to Star Wars. He gets his arms hacked off near the beginning and they grow back. And, you know, we know where this ends, He is destroyed, and then there's a little sprig of him left, which Rocket plants, and it dances to the Jackson 5 (laughs) at the end. Motion capture for that dance provided by James Gunn, because he he didn't like the way they had it dancing, so wonderful stuff there. I have my little pop vinyl of Dancing Group sat by me at the moment. You're part of the problem, Ben. I feel, like, as annoyed as I was at how much Group merchandise I was having to physically move myself and how much I would see out in the world and how much bad, like, sort of third-party made merch of it there is, you look at this and you, like, they deserve it. Like, he did so much. It's, It's such a cool character. And I think because he isn't given so much focus in this one in a way like they lean into him i feel in the second one but because he is one of five here i think it works really well i mentioned him getting his arms hacked off that is done by gamora played by zoe saldana she is kind of the adopted daughter of thanos she works with the villain she is supposed to be getting this orb off of star lord peter quill before he can sell it are Rocket and Groot trying to get Star-Lord because he's a wanted criminal? Right? Yeah, they're, basic, they're yeah. basically bounty hunters who go yeah. around picking up the odd contract and stuff like that. Gotcha, whereas... gotcha, gotcha. So that, that's, this is how this like, weird, wonderful group are coming together. I'm trying to explain that in lieu of doing the plot. So Zoe Saldana <laughs> is Gamora. She is a green lady. She is, I think, in some ways, cybernetically enhanced by Thanos. She has been raised for warfare. She is the most dangerous woman, deadliest woman, most dangerous woman in the universe in the comics. I don't know. but That's some level of that. Yeah. She, at one point, I think was quite a big deal. She was sort of heavily involved in the old Infinity Stones storylines. Then I think yeah, she Jim, kind Jim of... Stalin. Yeah, I think she creator. kind of vanished off the face of the earth until this. She's great, I think. it's. I don't have a huge amount to say about her, but she's very, very, very solid. Like, I think she delivers a very unique sort of sensibility to it where she's not trying to play it too dramatic she's not trying to play it too funny she's not trying to play it too sexy like she's kind of got her own sort of sass about her and a confidence she's just charismatic like zoe saltana almost always is i don't know it's weird because gamora doesn't really have a huge number of sort of very dramatic scenes in either movie but i think she crushes it with what material they give her Especially because she's not... I mean, Chris Pratt will take this movie and become a huge star, and Bradley Cooper and Vin Diesel are big stars, and Dave Bautista will have his coming-out party from this. I feel her star level hasn't really risen like the others have, but I think she's great. Because obviously she's coming off of being in Avatar, and she's coming off being in Star Trek, so like, it's not like she isn't in these massive hits. And the losers, come on. But like, she's, she's great. And uh, she's kind of like, after Black Widow, the start of Marvel doing really good work with these female protagonists, even if they will not give them a fucking solo movie to <laughs> save their lives. It's it's ins- like, she is really good. And because there's so much going on, they can't really dig into a lot about really anyone. Because they basically like, they, they stick their 
hole in the ground for Star Lord and his relationship to his mother and have that through line with the cassette tape and stuff like that. But then the very and, next time you see him, he is Star Lord. Yeah. But like you still get you still get like that is the emotional backbone of the movie is that relationship and that kind of like his running away from that and coming to terms with what he did back then is yeah. at that, the backbone of a lot of this. Yeah. But I think that is, that is a common denominator of a lot of the better superhero movies is they don't get bogged down in the origins. It's just like, okay, here's a flashback for Star-Lord, but you meet Groot, you meet Rocket, you meet Gamora, all fully formed. And after we see that scene uh, with Star-Lord as a kid, he is then immediately Star-Lord. Like, you get who they all are. Oh, for sure. But it's like that thing where it's like Gamora is... Her parents were killed. Thanos is her adoptive father who she wants to murder. And that's basically what we get. Drax's wife and daughter have been killed. That's their backstory. Rocket is uh, a genetic experiment. That's his backstory. Groot is... A tree. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas Star-Lord's the only one who we get. is the only one who, like, they build the movie around. And yeah. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it does help with the fact that they're trying to establish five leads. But I do think it does a disservice to some of the other characters where they have to do the back... They have to do a lot of the heavy lifting of what the emotion means especially because Gamora doesn't get the emotional payoff that some of these others do and will not get emotional payoff to our arc until presumably Infinity War which which I think is an important thing to mention at this point is that like a lot of this stuff is starting to build up to this future climax in this in this universe that they can't get to in this movie no <laughs> they cannot or the sequel really like the, that will go how it will go we'll talk about that but yeah she they give her a, I mean she's a badass but then they also give her the sort of will they won't they with Star Lords like they have the little romantic thing I think they've got good chemistry but I think they did a wise thing in not having this end with a kiss or anything like that in some ways like it wouldn't be good if they did get together but it, it should be a fun always will they won't they but in this first one I think it's played pretty well I don't know if everyone loves that about it but I, I think they have a, a fun little relationship where she's not like falling for him because she like puts a knife to his throat and tells him she will not fall for his pelvic sorcery which is a wonderful line it's nice that like she is for the most part the straight woman of yeah. the five but she w does get the moments to be funny which yeah. I think is which is important for the people who play that kind of role. Like she gets pelvic sorcery, she gets the Kevin Bacon quip later on in the movie. Like <laughs> we're just they, like Kevin Bacon. They give her funny stuff to say, but I do think for the most part she is the one who is doing the heavy lifting for the dramatic stuff. So this this little foursome break into a big fight over this orb that Peter has stolen, and they're all beating each other up, and then they are captured by the Nova Corps, who are basically space cops. What a weird bunch of people in the Nova Corps. John C. Riley <laughs> as Roman Day, Glenn Close as Nova Prime, who said she literally wanted to prove that she's fun. Peter Serafinovitz as Garth and Sal. Just what a weird collection of people that they don't really delve into at all. They're just like, yeah, they're kind of cops. It feels like John C. Riley. Peter Serafinowitz were people who James Gunn just likes and just think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. That, that'll be fun to be in this movie and then Glenn Close is like she gives them that level of like gravitas yes. that, that that kind of happens with it but it's just like you look at the three of them in a room together you're just like who the what? fuck did they make this decision <laughs> Serafinowitz just finds his way into movies inexplicably doesn't he I mean I'm still waiting on them to do Nova like the character Nova I think that could be very cool whichever rendition they do of it but for now we have the Nova Corps who are just space police someone for Chris Pratt to rebel against. Uh, they capture these people, they throw them in a prison. We get a little, like, here's who they all are kind of thing. They get to know each other a little bit. But 
They in prison meet Drax the Destroyer, played by former professional wrestler Dave Batista, who is now just an action dude, way better than he has any right to be. Like he had been in a lot of like straight to DVD type movies, like a lot of really bad action stuff. He ends up from this, he gets to be in a Bond movie, and just uh, he's not like a megastar or anything like that. But just for a guy that like wasn't an actor to come in and do this role that he's obviously physically perfect for like a huge jacked fucking dude playing Drax the Destroyer who's just an unstoppable ball of rage with a heavily altered backstory compared to his comic he's great like he you, you talk about Gamora being the straight man he he kind of is but then he his straightness bears out comedy of its own in stuff like he is he's incapable of grasping subtlety he takes everything literally he says like you know why would I put a finger against his throat and nothing would go over my head my fr- reflexes are too quick I would catch it and stuff like that he's he's I don't want to say he's so straight that like <laughs> but like it's just no, no, go on. Like, yeah <laughs> he's like such a straight man that it goes back the other way yeah totally. in a lot of ways like, he's, he's ridiculous he's another one who like if you lean on it too much it can probably get in the way but like they nailed just the right tone of this one like, again as you said like he's got these great little moments but it's not like you could probably go like oh why isn't he taking this super literally and it's like because yeah. that would that would make it not fun if it was literally everything that came out of anyone's mouth in any way a metaphor he was picking apart and stuff like that like come on it's supposed to go with it but yeah he's he's really good and the stuff he's saying it's got really good delivery and like it's kind of of hard delivery to make it like really fun because you have to have it be known that you're saying a joke and i would like i would catch it like someone who was just saying that line like wouldn't get a laugh but he manages to like add a level of confusion and like why (laughs) why are you implying that like i couldn't like couldn't do this like they they exclusively tested meatheads for this like the only like known person he beat out is jason momoa and everyone else is just like a bodybuilder or someone like that they changed him from being green to gray he is green in the comics because they thought people would confuse him for hulk which is dumb i always assumed it's that they didn't want gamora and drax to look too alike if they hate each other or something like that but or like any kind of idea that they might be the same species of alien but i've who knows they shift his backstory because i mean while he initially tries to kill gamora they all end up making friends he in the comics is like thanos's mortal enemy or thanos is his mortal enemy thanos i don't think really gives a shit about drax (laughs) because thanos killed drax drax's wife drax's kid and then Thanos' grandfather or something, or father, like, makes Drax reborn into a green machine of rage and he exists only to kill Thanos. Uh, they switch that backstory here to Ronan, who was the villain of this movie, killed his family, and he now wants to kill him. Ronan is played by Lee Pace. This is the most boring, forgettable villain. Not in any superhero movie, because, I mean, fuck Steppenwolf, like... But, I mean, a a guy like Lee Pace, who is a good actor, to come in and do that, it's it's crazy. Because, I mean, obviously it's it's an ensemble cast, so you're splitting your attention in more directions than normal. And I think there's a pretty cool opening scene with him, him being, like, ritualistically dressed and, and sort of painted on and dusted and all that. And he executes someone. It's like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then, other than a little argument he has with Thanos, fucking nothing. Like, he is a religious zealot, and they say that, but they make no effort to establish what that religion is. They don't give a shit about establishing the Kree so that there's like a counter voice to his opinion. No real exploration of his motivations. 
none of it. And I think that's part of a larger problem with this movie that goes under discussed. Most of the aliens that don't just look like humans, there's not a huge amount done to give them any depth whatsoever. And he is the the ultimate casualty of this because he's boring as fuck. Yeah, like we get there's what? There's the scene on the radio when Peter's flying back to Zandaran with the orb that like that the, there's been a peace treaty brokered and then Ronin is angry about the peace treaty, but we meet no representatives really from either side of this conflict that's actually like real. Oh. It's just Ronan is the figurehead for the entire the Cree point of view. And it's just do we meet any Sakarans apart from the guy who runs the um I don't think so, no. And, and that's well, no, the no, thing, no, like... he's oh, he's, no, he's he's no Ronan's got the Sakaran army, he's yes. their Zandarian, but the, yeah, it's just the Zandarian who runs the, the pawn shop or whatever yeah. you want to call it. And that's it. the thing, like they it seems like they're gonna do something with this because when Peter arrives to sell this orb, the guy won't sell to him because he knows Ronan's after it and they're like oh, Ronan but then it's like we will do no more than this to establish him if not for the Drax thing and it's I think it's still weird that they made it Ronan not Drax uh, Thanos that he hates there's, there's no reason to care and it, it's very strange because they kill Ronan in this movie Thanos is going to be around why did they make it make Thanos's big vendor and I, I know his final line is like of course, he was just a puppet. Thanos is who I must kill. It's sort of like, yeah, but I thought your emotional investment was in killing Ronan. It's, it's very weird. Like, Ronan is a character I actually quite like from the comics. Like, the, the concept of these accusers, these people that treat law like religion and, and all this kind of thing. I mean, they flip-flopped him a bunch where, like, he goes against the rest of the race and then he is their champion and then he goes against them and then he's with them. They've done that a ton. But a character that I kind of like just completely fucked in this movie <laughs> yeah he is like, the, he is the biggest weak link in the whole thing yeah they don't give him enough time he's kind of taken out of the context where he works in the comic books where like i mean he debuts in the fantastic four and then he plays like this massively important role in the crease skull war, war in the comics which is like a touchstone for an awful lot of people when it comes to like famous avengers stories mm. and then like, they also kind of miscast him like lee pace is far more charismatic than he's know. to be in this role <laughs> Like, I remember Lee Pace, like, my, my go-to Lee Pace role is Ned on Pushing Daisies, where he is just this warm, happy, giving person, and they don't do any of that. He's just in makeup, doing... Very he is like a tone. villain from a Mortal Kombat movie. He is just dark tones, standing around in his costume, in dim chambers, making vague statements. It's a 90s-ass villain. <laughs> Yeah, like it's sad that we get some of the worst villains in the MCU in Phase Two. Malekith is awful, <laughs> and Ronan is really bad. And like, but I think because this movie overall is better than obviously than Thor Two, this seems like a more egregious villain because he's so aggressively forgettable. Yeah, but like it's it's just they get actors who I like. I love Chris Rockson. I love Lee Pace, and then they do nothing with them. Yeah. Just nothing and it's really upsetting and it's a problem that like plagues as we discussed like it plagues a lot of these movies but i think it plagues a lot of phase two more than others yeah so ronan wants this orb we will learn about the orb it's an infinity stone like we learn this from the collector played by benicio del toro who is wonderfully weird presumably this is the role that hugh laurie and alan rickman and ken watanabe were in consideration for 
I can't imagine any of those three playing anyone but the Collector, but... Yeah, I think Ken Watanabe is Ronan. We get the big info dump about Infinity Stones, but who likes Infinity Stones? Thanos likes Infinity Stones. James Brolin makes his debut as Thanos after we had a dude whose name I don't remember playing him at the end of, end of the Avengers as a stand-in. And it's kind of weird that Thanos is just here. He just is there in a chair talking to Ronan, who, who works for Thanos. And, you know, Brolin, I think, is giving a good vocal performance. Some part of me thinks Thanos needs to be, like, way bigger than he is, but we haven't seen him standing next to a human-sized person in a film yet. He looks like he's pretty big in, in the trailers for Infinity War. But, you know, Thanos is this phenomenally huge dude in the comics. <laughs> like, he's literally a mutant. He, he is so big. And he kind of looks a bit small sitting in that chair. But, you know, it, it's it's strange they gave this movie, hey, have Thanos, have the Infinity Stones, but we've we've covered all that. But Josh Brolin's Thanos, I, I think he's going to end up being good. Yeah, I think I think he's good casting. And I think it's just, again, it's, as we said earlier, like, it's part of that thing. Either this movie's going to fail and it doesn't matter that we do this, or this is what we do to entice people into this movie. And saying to people who are looking for anything to do with Thanos after Avengers, I think you get some more seats in chairs sure like i, I don't think I, don't, I think it's one of those things where like they teased him and it's just like we have to do something and this is really like the only taste we get of thanos out of one more post-credit scene yeah for the next four years yeah it is crazy what they've done with it like i don't think there's any like backlash to it really but it's interesting the wire they they've sort of walked with thanos and, and trying to build him as the ultimate big bad yeah, we'll, we'll have to see what he does in Infinity War. Yeah, it's going to so, be interesting him having these two big comic book roles this year. Yeah, for sure. Like, he's Cable, physically. Um, so, Ronan has aspirations of his own. He doesn't particularly like working for Thanos. He gets a bit big for his boots. He kills the other, played by Alexis Denisov, back in a, in a nice little bit of continuity from the Avengers. And it's sort of... Uh, James Gunn talks about they did that to sort of show that Ronan is powerful because he managed, he killed the other without even really thinking about it. Is the other supposed to be some kind of, like, unbeatable force? Like Exactly. It's like, well, what? I mean, I guess because he talks shit to Loki, and Loki's a badass, except he's not, but he is. But yeah, working with Ronan initially on Thanos' orders, but then just going out on her own. Nebula, played by Karen Gillan. And I am obsessed with the look of Nebula. I think she is fucking mesmerizing to look at. The makeup job they do on her, the pres- and the, like the contact lenses and the, the shades of blue. And she shaved her fucking head for realsies for this, which is crazy. I remember the Comic Con where she comes out in the red wig, and you're like, her hair looks a bit strange. And then she takes it off, and she's for real bald. And it's like, oh man, so good on her for committing to that. I think she's she's pretty good. I think she's better in the second one because she has a less generic plot of like, I hate everything <laughs> but you know she she's by no means a weak link yeah no for sure like she's I, I loved her on Doctor Who and I'm so happy that she got to do something like afterwards which gets used her well like she's one of the better kind of like second in command villains we've had yeah. in she, a lot of these she, movies like in a movie where we're going to end up deciding the villain sucks like she's good and Thanos isn't bad <laughs> like I almost wish she was somehow the villain of the movie I mean, that's the thing, is, like, because she actually has an emotional tie to one of the characters. Yeah, like, she, she's like, another adopted daughter of Thanos. She she hates Gamora because Thanos openly favours Gamora, etc. Sorry, carry on. I mean, yeah, but it completely... I mean, I, I just said that, and I was just like, wait, no, Drax has an emotional tie to this character, but then you just kind of think, like, but do I actually care about 
that. No, like that, not feels, really. that feels so like it's just like a plot point they put in, and like I think Batista delivers his emotion emotion for it well, but we never get a feel for like there's actually something there because they undercut it again at the end with Drax going like, oh, I need to go take out Thanos now. Whereas you actually feel like Nebula and Gamora are siblings and that there's like something there. Mm. And I'm glad that they make it a bigger part of the second one. But like I've watched, there was more of it here because Nebula's going to be in Infinity War. She is. Good on her. Well, she's a Guardian now, really. Like, spoilers for the second uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. It's it's just one of those things where, like, I'm always glad when they figure out that they've got something good. Even if it's not the most well used, I think they realise that, like, Karen Gillan was good in this role and she has uh, an imposing physicality and she's... I mean, like, the scene where... I mean, it's all CGI, but the scene where, like, she gets thrown across the room and then you see her, like, fixing her body and mm. the chin, the chin like, snaps back into place. It's like, ooh, yeah. this is... And, like, she's been worked on one too many times and she's she's got some mental problems from that now. And Yeah, it's, it's all really good. So these people are trying to get the orb for destructive purposes. It will destroy an entire planet, according to the, to the Collector, if it even touches the surface, which leads to a problematic kind of closing stretch but the guardians are in prison they escalate a huge breakout there's some pretty fun stuff in there like Groot just wandering off and in the background while rocket's explaining his plan Groot gets it started and they're like well guess we better get on with it now they they break out they, they meet the collector there's the initial fight scene with ronan people almost die ronan gets the orb and start heads off for the planet that the nova Corps live on to destroy it and the guardians are forced to get some reinforcements and some help where does it come from but michael rooker as yondu leader of the ravagers who are just sort of space dirtbags and they are the people that quote-unquote abducted peter at the beginning and yondu kind of raised star lord and showed him the ropes and i like the little character beat that he sort of collects a lot of peter's toys and he sort of seems to find them fascinating or or cool or something that's just a nice little thing uh michael rooker is of course a huge well a frequent collaborator with james gunn he is of course also in the walking dead of course he's in the walking dead matt knew that and didn't do anything you know yondu as you said he's like the one character from that original team that's in this he ain't like this though because this is michael rooker painted blue with a one of the coolest sci-fi things i've seen in sort of a post matrix world like a like a very inventive thing this little arrow that he controls by whistling and he has a bow and arrow i believe in in the comics so he does they're taking a very tiny part of his character and adapting it in a very very cool way james gunn i think just wrote this character around rucker as soon as he got him on board he's great he's really good i mean it's it's nice that like in a in a role which is like the third villain of this movie in a lot of ways, or anti-villain. I don't know if you want to... <laughs> Shades of Grey, he has. Yeah, I um, had him in the villain camp, and then I'm like, you know what? He's not really. <laughs> but it's just one of those things where, like, he spends a lot of time antagonising Star-Lord. He gets to be funny. He gets to be intimidating. He gets to threaten with the whistle arrow a lot in the movie. Yeah, and then they, they really fu- tease that out before they actually let loose with it. But then when they let loose with it, it's fucking phenomenal. It's yeah. just like, oh, wow, he's... <laughs> You're like the premium badass in the universe, bro. Why aren't you in Infinity War? Oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) This is a role that, like, I mean, Michael Rooker can do this kind of thing in his sleep, but he just adds a whole lot to it. Like, I'm glad that he's one of the, like, of the characters who you maybe wouldn't expect to be in the next one. He, He does come back. And it's just good. Like, again, I think oh, what this movie nails is, like, so many of the characters and their interactions are just so top notch and they all have chemistry with each other. And it's just such a shame that Ronan is such a dud. 
Yeah. So yeah, the Guardians team up with the Ravagers and the Nova Corps to try and stop Ronan's ship from getting planet side because if he if he touches the stone to the ground the whole planet's wiped out pretty fun little action scene like i think in my head just to sort of assess this the the is the third act good or bad to just to do that now in my head the whole third act is bad that's not true at all it's really just the final confrontation with ronan because the the stuff with the ships is pretty fun and their little raid on ronan's ship and the fight scenes that's all pretty good i think in my head it was something more akin to winter soldier where it was like we need to like there's bits of it where like Gamora trying to like take out the, yeah. the doors they get into something like that. It's very similar to like we need to get this one MacGuffin into this one place so we can do this other thing. Uh, but then they manage to build it around character beats with Gamora and her sister and like it's like, okay, like yeah. there is there is some good stuff here and you feel tension in the fact the entire Nova Corps gets wiped out <laughs> and yes. and like and like when they jump into the room and they fire the giant fucking rocket <laughs> at, at Ronan and it just blows up and he's just there with a hole in his chest. They they do a lot of really fun things. I don't think like I think it gets a bit too actiony and it kind of like stops the character beats. Like there are still character beats, but I don't think they're interacting with each other. They're just having a little kind of set piece moments that show off what they are. Like as you said, like this is where that group scene where he like he impales like six guys and then smashes them against the wall and does the smile. <laughs> and then he says where... we are Groot. And like fine that's cute as hell, but I am going to need an explanation on to how you <laughs> broke his one rule. Yeah. And then you got like Drax with the like not understanding metaphors and like like ah finger on neck means you die or whatever yeah. whatever he says and then he rips out someone's brain uh, <laughs> Jumon Honsu's brain yeah. oh I do like that he when Groot is committing that horrific violence Drax just sort of smiles really enthusiastically <laughs> when Peter looks at him and it's like oh god what am I surrounded with yeah that's that's all good fun but then the big confrontation with our villain. It's like, okay, maybe we save it if we have a really cool final fight. Peter challenges him to a dance-off. And I guess that's in keeping with who he is. And he's like, oh, I'm just distracting you. And then he gets shot and all that. It's just a bit like, I guess this is what you've been all along. And to not stay true to that would be weird. And, you know, what Guardians 2 culminates in with a huge, like, two CG things hitting each other is not better than this. But it's a bit like, hmm, okay... And then the the stone, which we see earlier on, the collector's assistant, Karina, I think she's called. Her real name is Ophelia Lovibond, and it's like, how you've managed to have a weirder real name than your fake sci-fi <laughs> pink lady name is, is strange. But she touched the, the Infinity Stone, and she died immediately, and almost everyone in the room died. And the stone is blown out of, of Ronan's hammer by, by th- this weapon, and Star-Lord leaps for it and grabs it. And it's like, oh, well, you're going to die. But through the magic of all holding hands, they are able to, between them, withstand this. And then they kill Ronan with it. And it's like, mm, yeah, I don't know if that's satisfying to me. But then the villain wasn't good to begin with. So would anything have been satisfying? When I think of that scene, I think of the actual confrontation is over in about three, four minutes tops. True. But like the, the only bits that actually like stick with me are everyone reacting to group being dead or I say everyone like Rocket's reaction to Groot being dead and then them having been thrust into this fight because Groot's encapsulated them and protected them as the ship crashed and when Peter like finally touches his mum's hand after he couldn't do it at the beginning yes. it's like that like cyclical thing where like they finally get Star-Lord to actually accept his mother's death is the only kind of like saving grace of this final scene and it's I think that's 
the important thing that they nail and i think it kind of drags act three up this final confrontation up a little bit even if the villain is so lame that he gets taken down like oh it's the most powerful weapon in the universe but he gets taken down in one hit really like, <laughs> yeah, pretty much <laughs> like they, they blow dust on him and then he explodes and it's just like okay it's just because the movie's so successful and everything else and yeah. like it's, it's almost like did you need a villain couldn't there have been something else couldn't it have been like a bunch of people trying to get infinity stones and like you just got it in the end or just some weird like mix up between the the space cops and the ravagers and the guardians are sort of the chaotic middle and you know you could have done something like that with this thing yeah. just changing hands and yeah like you didn't need this central villain especially when it's so lame and you've got people who fill these antagonistic roles well enough on the outsides that you don't need to rely on yeah. one central villain it, it could have just been nebula like nebula could have been sent by thanos to try and get it like by herself it didn't need like a small army and and Ronan. Like she could have just been representation of Thanos, and then you've also got the Ravagers and the Novacore and the, Ga- the Guardians and the Collector, and like that was enough, definitely. Yeah, I think I think it's just one of those things where like there's this increasing feel that these movies have to have end of the world yes. consequences for and them. They, they will have to break free of that sooner or later because again after avengers like oh new york city's gonna get destroyed and there's a nuclear bomb and like uh, da, 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 like they're, they're building up the stakes of these movies step by step and the best part of these movies going forwards is that some of them start to realize we don't need to have these life or death stakes for the entire universe or the the, the entire world and i don't think guardians is guardians 2 is isn't one that gets away from that trap but like looking at like like black panther at the moment it's one that isn't dealing with these end of the world stakes well, if Killmonger's plan, had... I, but, I, but I mean, like it's it's a it's a very <laughs> sure. different. Like it's not like the world is going to blow up. It's more like a very different kind of like this isn't this is we are going to change the status quo rather than we are going to sure. blow up a planet and kill every uh, kill millions and millions of people. Yeah, and the reason Peter can survive, I I forgot that they make it as explicit as it is because you know Yondu leaves this film thinking he has the the stone back and Craggle and Sean Gunn says to him you know I think he basically like makes reference to oh it's a good thing we didn't deliver him to his daddy like we were paid to it's a very sort of on the nose like this is what this is moment and then I remember that, but then I forgot that the Nova Corps do this big explain where they scan Peter and they're like, oh, turns out your dad isn't human and uh, he's something very ancient that we haven't seen. I was like, oh, that's far more on the nose than I thought. Because they, they said coming out of this, his dad isn't who it is in the comics. And don't know how the response was to that, but it will go a very interesting place but yeah i forgot how heavy-handed they are with that but because star lord's mysterious parentage he is able to touch that stone uh, yeah it's, it's also uh, the most obvious sequel building we've really had for any of these so far not <laughs> since terence howard said next time <laughs> <laughs> yeah but like we end this movie with a tease of who his dad is yeah. the fact that this thanos thing hasn't been wrapped up so we know that that's got to be wrapped up at some point um including drax doubling down on thanos and then the movie literally ends with the title card saying the guardians will return not even at the very end of the credits like his tradition it's literally the the first shot of the the credit sequence is the guardians of the galaxy will return and it's like oh wow you you guys are yeah. confident and then you don't get a mid-credit sequence you get like an immediate sequence with with group dancing and then nothing until the end with the howard the duck scene with uh, seth green voicing howard the duck in the collector's little 
little vault and i know a lot of people had fun trying to identify objects and individuals that are in the collector's area including the cocoon of adam warlock that would immediately be <laughs> swept quietly under the rug but then they will reintroduce him in the in the second one kind of <laughs> there are two cocoons for adam warlock and i really hope they do something with that and that there's two of him uh, or some oh uh, that would be fun <laughs> fred the dog plays Cosmo, who is a fun character in the comics, but they don't go all the way with the telepathic dog thing in this. They go they go all the way with the talking duck thing because he's in a pretty infamously bad movie. Uh, but they don't go all the way with the talking dog, and I feel like the talking dog would have been a bigger hit than the talking duck outside of comic fans. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Stan Lee plays a, <laughs> how appropriate, a, uh, a lecherous <laughs> old man who <laughs> is bad mouth by Bradley Cooper. Nathan Fillion allegedly voices one of the inmates in the prison. I don't know who it is. I don't know if it's, you do know who th- he voices the inmate who Groot sticks his fingers up his nose oh okay yeah then he's actually changing his very recognisable voice that's that's good on him Rob Zombie's in this movie as one of the Ravagers that's kind of weird I think that's pretty much everyone and the whole plot and we've we've said how we feel about the villain That that's not good the third act I'm not willing to say it's a huge huge step down like if you're saying oh this movie's good except for the third act I'm not willing to go that far if you want to say the final confrontation with the villain sucks fine but i think that third act has some pretty fun stuff in it yeah i think it's 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 on a par with like iron man 3 and winter soldier where act 3 is not as good as act 1 and act 2 i think it's better like, than both of those I, I i'm just saying like it's on a similar level where like it's not it's it's a step down but it's not a step down that hurts the movie yeah it doesn't like, break oh, it <laughs> all three of all three of those movies are like in my top ranked Marvel movies, and as I've said before many times this podcast, Act Three being terrible would mean I didn't like the movie. But like I like all of those movies a hell of a lot, so yeah. obviously it's not it's not doing anything out of the ordinary. It's just if we're saying good Act Three, bad Act Three, it's a bad Act Three in comparison to the fantastic first two acts that come beforehand. But but I think when people talk about that, they're talking about this is this film is good. But, or like, the film was good up until this happened and then this ruined it kind of thing. And I don't think that really counts. But, you know, they are continuing to have problems sticking the landing on their movies. But, you know, we'll see what happens there. And obviously it didn't hurt too much because this film is adored by so many people. Like, so many people are turning a blind eye to the badness of the villain and and the quality of the third act. Because, you know, they, they fucking nailed so much else. And it's funny and it's fun and you like all the characters and the world and the sensibilities and the style. And it's a merchandising fucking machine. So... Yeah, this is this was a big deal. It continues to be a big deal. I'm still shocked that Guns Two did not make a billion dollars at the box office. I am as well. Uh, like, I, regardless that, of the quality of it, you would think the level of excitement would be phenomenal. Yeah, like Iron Man Three did a billion. I'm shocked that Guardians Two didn't. I mean, it did better than Guardians One. It did a hundred million more at the box office, but it felt like this movie started a phenomenon that was going to just rise and rise and rise in between it and it's bigger but like i mean there's a cartoon there's more than one soundtrack album that has like there's the cosmic mix which goes with the cartoon Uh, there's an awesome mix volume two that goes with the second movie there's you know the comic book itself went to big heights they did spin-off comics there's a game based on this i think the action figures did pretty well yeah, like um, I mean, there's, there's, they did solo series for pretty much every character in yeah. the series. I think Drax is the only one that hasn't had a solo series since this movie came out. He has, has he? written by uh, CM Punk and other former. Oh wrestler. yes, he did. He did, didn't he? he oh. did. Yeah, I don't think it's still happening, but uh... no. I mean, uh, I mean, of those, I really love the Rocket Raccoon series that was done by um, Scotty Young, which is just ah, a cartoony Scotty fun. Scotty Young with a K. Yeah. 
with a K. And uh, I also really adored the Star Lord series by Chip Zdarsky and Chris Anker, which yeah, is basically that was, that was pretty good. Yeah, like both both good. those strong recommends if you're looking for more of these characters in this vein. Yes. Well, speaking of these characters, we do have one final bit of business to attend to, and uh, we like to give nods to the outstanding performances in Marvel. We get one nomination per film. If there isn't anyone who is good, we keep that nomination, and we can get two people from another film. And we debated this a lot, and I think. Before we got to this episode, you were trying to make a strong pitch for Sean Gunn. I mean, that is a very good case to make. Chris Pratt seems like a, a pretty big front runner in that he single-handedly proved everyone wrong and was like, I am a fucking A-lister, I have arrived. But I would feel weird about giving it to him, and you proposed something that may kind of be gross to some people in terms of this game that we play, but I kind of like the idea of giving it to all five of the Guardians as a tie, because... I'm stealing from you here, but I host, so fuck you. They all make each other better, and they are a strong unit. It's not one person carrying and the others are just keeping up. They seem like actors of equal esteem when you watch them all together, and they no one is the lead. I mean, I, Peter Quill is kind of the leader, but like they are a family, they're a unit. They have fun arguments, they have fun team-ups, and I would feel really okay about giving it to them as a five-way tie because you're getting something different from everyone and they're all making each other better, as you said. Yeah, like this is, I was going to say, like coming into this, I was like, I've got two two proposals, both of which are like kind of breaking our rules, which is like we either give it to all five of them or we give it to Bradley Cooper and Sean Gunn as like four what they did with Rocket. And I probably feel more comfortable giving it to all five of them because they are all excellent and they are all really good. And this movie does not survive without all five of those characters popping off the screen in the way that they do. Yeah. And they um, and they have to be an ensemble. Like It's not like the Avengers where, like, you know, this is a group of individuals who are great or, like, you know, you have your favourites amongst them. I think this really is a five-person unit that are a collective entity. And I think, I think it works really well. If, if someone came along to us and was like, no, you must pick one, I probably would give it to the Rocket character because of all the different things going there but I would much rather give it to the five of them as a tie and it's our fucking thing so we make the rules so <laughs> yeah like they are a tie and we must assess if they are better in Guardian like they 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 must defend their title against the five individually and I I'm I am ruling that no individual of this five may be nominated in Guardians 2 it must be the all five or it must be a different person and they maintain Ooh. their ranking I I love that like this is an ensemble in the way that Avengers isn't. Avengers is we've had at that point five movies to kind of set up who these characters are and this is all them coming together and they begin to work as a team throughout the movie whereas this they're coming up together we're getting to know them at the same time we don't have biases or we haven't seen some of their solo moves beforehand like this is it and the entire movie develops within itself and I think that's even more impressive in some ways than what Avengers did is Avengers is the culmination of six movies, and I care a lot about all those characters in this movie, whereas this is one two-hour movie, and I care about all these characters to a similar degree that I care about the Avengers, as I did at the end of that one, at the end of six movies. And we cannot wait to see what they do in Infinity War, and they've literally been in two movies. Obviously, they will have been planning Infinity War for a long time, but I would imagine the earliest stages of it, the Guardians weren't a huge deal. Like Maybe it was like will bring everyone in in some form, and maybe they feature lightly. They are being positioned to be one of the biggest parts about Infinity War. 
and that the success of this cannot be understated in that regard. Yeah, they're they're the stinger in the first trailer. It's like the yeah. reveal that the Guardians are coming to town. Like everyone already knew it, but like they positioned them as like, and look, the Guardians are here too. And <laughs> I, I remember I, I I watched this with someone who I told them that the Guardians are in it, but when they saw that, they were like, oh shit! And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's going to be very fun to see these people who are completely segmented from everything else Marvel have done because they are not even in the same like solar system <laughs> potentially from well categorically so it's very exciting to think about the kinds of like how that will fuck with the chemistry and what new fun bonds and fan fictions this will create you know in the same way that seeing Stark and Banner be friends like everyone was very enthusiastic about that I wonder what kind of things we'll get with the others here like I know that uh, Chris Pratt and Tom Holland seem to have bonded quite well as humans. I wonder if there will be some fun Spider-Man and Star-Lord stuff. Who fucking knows? Maybe Thor and Drax will be buds. I don't know. What I do know is this has been another episode of Ben and Matt's Marvelous Journey. We will be doing Avengers Age of Ultron next if I am not mistaken and that's going to be a pretty interesting episode I think for many many reasons both discussing the merits of the film and the enormous controversy surrounding it behind the scenes and the ramifications of that do go to entertherealworld.com that's two e's realworld.com check out all our content there listen to from broadcast depth which is a lost podcast presented by kevin ford and ben lundy it's a very good time you can find that on our website and on our soundcloud it's not on our youtube account because their episodes are too large in file size and kevin will not send me small files be damned so that's that's that and uh this has been guardians and you get i who even knows what songs i've i've picked to be the opening and closing for this podcast because obviously that happens way after we record them so here comes another cool song from guardians (laughs) 